Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started uh, this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer. The reason we do this is because I just want to use it as a good pedagogical tool to remind everyone of the importance of keeping short accounts in terms of confession of sin. Not everybody does this. Many, many pastors uh, believe that you should, uh, that confession of sin restores fellowship, allows you to walk in the Spirit and to abide in Christ. But not everybody goes through a process where they emphasize the importance of confession of sin before class. I think it's a good pedagogical tool. It reminds everybody of the importance of this because we all have a tendency just to let things slide. And so this is not one of those things we should ever let slide. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, confess any sin and to make sure that you are in right relationship with God so that you can continue your spiritual growth. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a tremendous and wonderful privilege we have to come before your throne of grace, that because our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that the veil was rent asunder, that the opening access to you has been uh, opened by his death, that because of his high priesthood and because we are in him, we have a priesthood related to his and that we have immediate access to him because he is our merciful high priest. Now, Father, we thank you that we can come together this evening to study your word. We pray that we might have a great hunger for your word, just a, a desire to know it, to internalize it, to make it part of our lives, that we might not take lightly what we're studying and that we might realize that it is your word that we're studying, that you have revealed this to us and that this is a monument through the ages to your grace and to your provision of salvation and an instruction manual for us that we might be properly related to you. And, Father, we pray that we might focus our attention this evening upon you and that we might realize how critical it is for us to understand your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I said in the prayer, it's so important for us to know God's word. Somehow people think that that if we just know the, the doctrines in God's Word, we understand the theology. Yes, that's true, but, but it's the Word of God that's so important that we should understand. And it's not just an end in and of itself. When we study the Bible, when you read through books of the Bible, uh, you read through the epistles of Paul, we need to recognize that, that these are given to us the way they're given to us so that we will take the time make the time, create the time in our own lives and in our own uh, busy schedules uh, to take 
put our attention upon God's Word to internalize it so that we can think through it. And as we internalize the Word and can think about it, it teaches us how to handle reality. It fortifies and strengthens our soul. And as uh, it's been my custom for probably 10 or 12 years now, when I go through various books, especially lengthy books in the Bible, I like to take the time to stop and and sort of pull back and give uh, overviews of different sections. And at the beginning of a book and at the end of the book, I like to give an overview so that we can learn to think our way through these epistles. We spend a lot of time drilling down on lessons. This is uh, approximately lesson 150. 52, uh, no, 150 what? 153? 163. 163. Okay, I was only off by 10. 163. And this is, and it's been four years since we've been in Romans. And we've drilled down on a lot of important things that are taught in Romans. There are a lot of doctrines that are related to what's taught in, in Romans. And it's important for us to understand those things. And in doing so, though, we often get away from uh, just a, the basic understanding of, of an epistle itself. And we have to be reminded that in the original context, when Paul wrote this to the church, to the congregation in Rome, that it was read at one sitting to the congregation in Rome. And that really wouldn't take that long. It might take about 30 minutes or so to read through the entire uh, 16 chapters of, of Romans. And this is uh, this was done all at one time. Now we come along and we break it down and we analyze it. We study each uh, minute component of it so that we can grasp it because we're somewhat removed from the original context, both in time as well as in culture as well as in background. And we've learned a lot about the various uh, nuances that are uh, given in Romans and the doctrines that are embedded there are just briefly summarized in various sentences. And so it's important for us to go through that. But when we're done, we need to go back and we need to be able to uh, have a flyover and to think about the, the entirety of Romans. And this helps us to put it into our soul. It's not just a matter of getting it into our notebooks. It's a matter of getting it into our thinking so that when we face the challenges of life, when we face hardship, difficulty, adversity, opposition, whatever it may be, we need to be able to pull up verses from the Scripture that we've memorized, that we've internalized, as well as principles that we've come to understand that are in God's Word. And so we need to constantly be be thinking about it. So when we look at, at Romans, we remember that this was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written on his third missionary journey from Corinth. He wrote three epistles on his third on, on his third missionary journey, first and second Corinthians while he was on his his way to Corinth, and then probably from Corinth he wrote this epistle to the Roman church. And he's writing this for a couple of different reasons. It's very important for him to be writing it uh, to the church in Rome because Rome is the capital of the empire. Everything came to Rome and came out of Rome. And so Rome is the center of the government, the center of the empire, the center of the Roman universe. And the church at Rome was particularly significant. It was a church that was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And they were experiencing some conflict, some problems within their congregation simply because Jewish background believers in Jesus as a Messiah were coming to the 
coming to Christianity and having to deal with the fact that the law was no longer uh, no longer significant in the way it had been uh, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, the time previous to the cross. So they were having to learn to think in a new way in relationship to uh, to the Old Testament. And Paul quotes from the Old Testament quite a bit to pull things together for them in this epistle. For Gentiles are coming from a pagan background, and they have to learn how to handle certain situations, especially in relationship to the Jews, and coming to understand that the Jewish people are still a select holy people of God, and even though God is uh, doing something different with them in this dispensation, Nevertheless, God has a future plan for Israel, and that's covered in Romans 9 through 11, and it also plays an important role in understanding the issues related to the weaker Christian in Romans chapter 14 and 15. And so this was important to to lay out an extremely logical, thought-out case for Christianity. He lays out the foundation for the gospel, uh, which he focuses on under the under the uh, terminology of justification by faith alone, and that becomes a very important topic today we 're very loose in the way we talk about about uh, our relationship with God and how a person gets eternal life. We often use the simple phrase uh, uh, salvation, but in the book of Romans, we discovered that the term salvation is a term that does not apply to that initial stage of justification. It was a term that Paul used to refer to either to the spiritual life, being saved from the power of sin, or to the culmination of all, fa- all three phases of salvation in terms of glorification and being delivered or saved from the presence of sin. He never uses the uh, sozo or salvation word group in relation to justification. Now, that causes a lot of problems and a lot of, a lot of misunderstandings. But Paul, but Paul writes Romans in order to give a very well-thought-out, logical development of the doctrines of salvation and the spiritual, the, in terms of justification, the doctrine of the spiritual life or sanctification, experiential sanctification, and of the impact that these doctrines, this, these important truths should have on our day-to-day life. He begins by this by emphasizing the righteousness of God, and so I put as the title for this, The Righteousness of God. Romans is all about developing our understanding of God's righteousness. And it's interesting that in both Hebrew and Greek, the words for righteousness and the words for justice are the same. In the Old Testament, it's the word group uh, tzedakah, in the New Testament, it's from the word group from Dikaios and Dikaiosune. Uh, Dikaios has to do with justice or righteousness, and Dikaiosune emphasizes the quality of righteousness. But they, the context is going to determine how you understand these words. If, the, if, if it's talking about God or the character of God or the attribute of God, then it usually emphasizes his his. Uh, righteousness, that he is the absolute standard for the universe. When it's talking about his the, the expression of that attribute towards his creation, then we would translate it justice. Justice is the application of God's righteous standard to his creation. So these two 
attributes that we put in the essence box of God, his justice and his righteousness, are very closely related. And so that forms the core, uh, core teaching in Romans that Paul is developing. So he talks about the righteousness of God revealed. And we see this in the central verse for Romans, which is in that first chapter. And you should have your Bible open as we go through this. I'm going to run through Romans in uh, chapter by chapter. But there should be some verses that you have underlined that are very significant verses to be aware of. And in the first chapter, that would be Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now, just in a couple of observations there, it's the power of God unto a goal. That's the express, the way it's expressed in the Greek indicates a goal, and that goal is salvation, and it's not phase one justification. It's talking about the culmination of God's plan, phase one, phase two, phase three, glorification with him. And so here, it, the gospel of Christ And this is something I think a lot of people miss. The term gospel has two meanings. It is a a narrow sense of the gospel, which is what must I believe in order to secure an eternal destiny in heaven, the good news related to uh, what we would call justification. And then there's a broader sense, which is everything that flows from that. And this verse gives us that orientation at the beginning of this epistle. Paul is talking about the the power of God to salvation, and the whole book is talking about salvation. The whole book is talking about the gospel, but only the first five chapters talk about how we are justified. The remainder of the, the epistle talks about the results of that justification and in terms of our of our spiritual life. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So he's showing that there's still a priority to the Jew first because they're still God's chosen people. So he's not, uh, this isn't some hangover that he has from uh, the previous dispensation. He understands that as long as, in that period of the church age, as long as the temple was still standing in Jerusalem, that there was still a, a prior, priority message to the Jewish people. So he always, whenever he went to a new place, he always went to a synagogue first, and then he, those who believed in Jesus as Messiah uh, eventually would leave the synagogue or be asked to leave or be run out of the synagogue, and then uh, they would start a congregation. And then in verse 17, Paul says, For in it, in what? What is the it uh, uh, describing? For in it, that is, in the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, when we understand that concept of faith to faith, it's talking about the faith that we have at justification to the faith that we have in in our spiritual life, that we not only uh, believe in Christ, and faith is the key to justification, we're justified by faith alone, but we also walk by faith after salvation. So there is faith related to justification and faith related to our ongoing spiritual walk. So this is the uh, introduction. The first 17 verses focus on that and help us to understand 
that the focal point here is going to be on understanding the uh, the righteousness of God. That is, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So he's going to be developing and explaining the righteousness of God as it relates to God's plan for mankind as we go through Revelation. So the first, I mean, go through Romans. So the first part of Romans, the first 11 chapters is really focused on instruction about God's righteousness. We're being taught about the righteousness of God as it relates to mankind. Now, in the second part of Romans, there is a personal application of that instruction to individual believers. So the first part teaches us about God's righteousness in these areas. There's a lot of application there. But in the last part, Paul, as, as is Paul's style many times, he then make some more specific applications related to what he taught in the first part of the epistle. So we have instruct an instruction section in chapters 1 through 11, and then we have a more direct application section in chapters 12 through 16. The first 17 verses comprise the introduction where he brings into focus the righteousness of God, as I've just pointed out, in verses 16 and 17, and you should have those underlined. And then in the next section, he talks about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And in this section, we cover the section from 118 down through 521 thought I had put that in there, but it's disappeared from 118 to 521. That covers the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, when he does this, he sets it up by looking at the need for justification in chapters uh, from 118 down to about 320, the need for justification. And this is when he talks about sin. Now, he's not talking about sin like some modern evangelists do, where he's saying that you need to repent of your sin, but you, he's pointing out that you need to recognize you're a sinner, that you're spiritually dead, that you have a need for righteousness. So there's a very specific reason and purpose for stating and making sure somebody understands that they're a sinner. Because if you don't know that you're drowning, you're not going to reach for the life preserver. It's not that you're ber- berating the purpose, the person for the fact that he's drowning, which is what some... Uh, evangelistic approaches do, and that's just terrible. The issue at, at, at the gospel hearing is not what sins a person's committed because they're already paid for at the cross. But the person has to understand that they're spiritually dead and they're in desperate need of justification. They are unrighteous. And so in these chapters from 118 through 320, Paul lays out a legal case for why Three distinct groups of human beings are under condemnation. The first group that he addresses is covered in 118 down through the end of the chapter, 132, where he condemns the immoral man, the man who has rejected God, the one who has uh, rejected the existence of God and is living in rank immorality. But immoral unrighteousness is not the only problem. There's also a problem of moral unrighteousness. And the uh, moral person, the one who is morally righteous, but he is, in terms of absolute righteousness, he's a failure, 
is the problem with the second man in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. He has a relative righteousness. He's moral, but morality doesn't get you anywhere with God. Just because you're a moral person doesn't mean you're good. The Pharisees were moral. They were extremely moral. They were as obedient to the Mosaic law as they could possibly be. People in the uh, in the first century were amazed when Jesus confronted the the, the Pharisees on the basis of their uh, lack of righteousness because from their perspective, they were moral people and they were teaching the Torah. They were teaching the law of God. And so where Paul goes with this, he's, he shows that, that the immoral uh, man is under condemnation. The moral man is under condemnation. This would refer primarily to Gentiles in chapters two, in chapter two, one through sixteen, and then starting in chapter, chapter two, verse seventeen, he shows that the moral Jews, the religious Jews, the observant Jews, the Torah observant Jews of his day are also under condemnation. And this was what we worked through in terms of uh, of our study: is that they are all under condemnation. He trots out the evidence to show that they are all guilty and they fail to come up to the standards of God. Now, if we look at those, ver- those, those sections, there are several verses there that you should have underlined and, in fact, that would not be, uh, w- would not be difficult for you to memorize. Verses 18, 18 through 20, actually down through 21, are, is one of the most significant uh, cluster of verses in the scripture. The wrath of God is revealed, present tense, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I want you to notice in your Bible that there is a comma after men. And a couple of us around here have had an ongoing running debate about when and when not to use commas. You know, I always get confused over commas because I grew up in an era when uh, there was a lot of shift going on in how uh, how commas were taught. I was taught to use a lot of commas at one time when I was probably in junior high. By the time I was in college, I was taught not to use commas. And you can look in various style books, and they'll reflect these debates that go on. And depends on whether you're following the guidelines of of uh, whatever style book it is, whether it's the Chicago Manual of Style or or one of the others. Some will have more commas, some will have less commas. But it's important sometimes to look at where the commas are in Scripture because they sometimes indicate a translator's theological perception. And what we have here in this phrase, that the unrighteousness of men, and then the, the next phrase is a relative clause saying, who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness? So is, the issue is, is this a condemnation? God's wrath is revealed against the unrighteousness of men. Does that relative clause describe all mankind, that every single human being is characterized as a truth suppressor? Or is this related to a class of men who are truth suppressors? Now, that's an important theological distinction because high Calvinism will say that all men are truth suppressors and thus they are are totally unable to even exercise positive volition towards the 
the general revelation of God in the creation, which is the focal point of verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his, uh, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So it's very clear that a fallen human being can look at creation and can discern that there is a creator from general revelation and that he can exercise positive volition at that point. That doesn't mean he's going to be saved. That doesn't mean that when he gets to gospel hearing, he's going to exercise positive volition. When he gets to gospel hearing, he may exercise negative volition, but at some point he, he, may, he recognizes that there, there is a God. But there are others who, at God consciousness, reject God, and they are truth suppressors, and they are the ones who are described in the following verses in chapter 1 because they come under a judgment of God in three different uh, three different series of judgments, and that's indicated by that phraseology in verse 24, God also gave them up, and then in verse 26, it is increased, God gave them up again, in verse 28, God gave them over. And in these, you will see that what God gives them up to includes the sins of sexual immorality and uh, sexual perversion. So that sexual immorality in a culture and sexual perversion is not the cause of divine discipline on that culture. It is the divine discipline on that culture. So when we look at the rise of homosexual perversion in our culture, that is a sign of judgment on a culture that has already rejected God and has already turned its back on God and no longer wants to submit to the authority of God. And so in this section, we focus on the uh, unrighteous, uh, immoral pagan, and then there's a shift in chapter 2 to the moral person who is, even though he doesn't have the law of Moses, he is obedient to the same principles that he has come to understand them just from from creation. But he, but Paul points out that even these moral men are still hypocrites. They're still verse eight, chapter two, verse eight. They're still self-seeking. They don't obey the truth, and they obey unrighteousness. And to them will also come indignation and wrath. That is divine judgment. Tribulation and anguish, verse 9, on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in verse 12, he says, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. That would be a reference to uh, to the Jews. So by the time we get to verse 17, he's focusing on the Jewish community and they have relying upon the law. And he points out that as much as they uh, are, are devoted to the law, they are still sinful. They have focused on ritual as a source of righteousness. They've emphasized circumcision, that if they are circumcised because they are descendants of Abraham, then because of their relation to the Abrahamic covenant, they will automatically be saved. And if they are obedient to the Torah, this is clear, and this is unique to Jews. So uh, Paul disabuses them of that notion. In verse 25, he says, For circumcision is indeed profitable. Ritual does have a reality if properly understood. He says it's profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, the circumcision is 
might as well not be there. So the point that he's making is the ritual really doesn't have any value one way or the other. The real issue is whether you are uh, obedient to the law. And so he goes on to say in verse 26, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, the ritual really doesn't affect his righteousness. And his conclusion then is going to be that that the real issue is what's going on internally in terms of the individual's um, individual's relationship to God. Then as we get into chapter 3, he also develops the fact that the Jews, not only are they, have they, uh, are they recipients of the covenant, are they uh, recipients of the Abrahamic blessing, but they're recipients of the oracles of God, and they have many blessings that God has given them. However, th- that does not mean that they are automatically righteous. They are still unrighteous, and so they will still come under condemnation. And this is where he drives at his conclusion of this section in verses 9 through 18 through a series of Old Testament quotes where he points out that, that there's none righteous, no, not one. He goes back to the, uh, he goes back to the Psalms, uh, in Psalm 14 and other various other Psalms that he quotes here to point out that no one is righteous. No one measures up to the standard of God. No one is, is going to be justified simply because of their relationship to the law or because of observance of ritual. And this takes him to the answer the next question, which is if we're all unrighteous, if every person is born unrighteous, and this is the doctrine of total depravity, not total inability. And I want to point out the distinction there. Total inability means you can't, in, in Calvinist theology, means that a person cannot even exercise positive volition towards God. Everything is dependent upon God's selective process in their doctrine of election. But in uh, but many mo- what we call what are called moderate Calvinists uh, believe in total depravity. There's a difference. Total depravity means that everyone is a sinner and everyone has a sin nature. And so we have our diagram of the sin nature, which emphasizes the fact that we are all fallen creatures and all under condemnation. And the sin nature is driven by lust patterns. At the very core of the sin nature, we have our own arrogance. We're self-absorbed and we're focused on just living our lives apart from God. We can produce relative righteousness. We can be the moral person, but ultimately we still have sin in our lives. For as Paul is going to say in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all also commit personal sins from our area of weakness. This may be sins of the tongue. This may be mental attitude sins or may be overt sins. But we all commit personal sins. Now, we have a trend to our sin nature, and this is important to understand that some people have a trend towards asceticism. That means they're, they're really moral. They're the Pharisees trended towards asceticism. The, the observant Jews, the Hasidim, the Haredim in Israel, when we go over there, uh, we see them. They're, they're praying. They're, they're discussing the Torah all of the time. They're meditating on the Torah all of the time. But what the Bible says is, is that we're all sin- sinners. Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53 says. And we turned everyone to his own way. That's everyone. We're all corrupted by sin. That's what total depravity means. It doesn't mean we're as depraved as we can be. It means that in the totality of our being, 
Every aspect of our person has been corrupted by sin, and so we are desperately in need of salvation. So if we're all corrupted by sin, then we can't produce anything of righteousness. We can only produce relative righteousness, but if we're relying upon that, that leads to moral degeneracy. That was the problem with the Pharisees. But there are other people who trend in an opposite direction, and they are licentious or lascivious. They don't uh, really care about the law of God. They're always looking at a way to circumvent it. And this also has an impact in terms of the way they think, in terms of uh, irrationalism and mysticism. A lot of that is what we see today. When you reject standards for thought, you, you, you just go into irrationalism, and, and that dominates our culture, especially in, in postmodernism. So... This leads to a recognition that we have that we are desperately in need of righteousness. And this is what Paul developed starting in 321. He says, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness, and that's what I have here on the chart at the top, his righteousness and justice, looks down on our lack of righteousness, and we're under condemnation. There is nothing that we can do to change our status as being spiritually dead and being unrighteous. And so God made a provision for us in terms of salvation where when the, when the righteous uh, Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, was crucified on the cross, then we're told in Isaiah 64, 6, because all of us are unclean, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, God had to solve that problem, and he did so by making Christ to be sin. He imputed our sin to him on the cross. So that what happens is our sin is imputed to Christ on the cross, and he is judged. Then when we trust in Christ as Savior, when we believe believe God's promise, then we are declared righteous. This is the illustration Paul develops from the Old Testament, from Abraham, In Romans chapter 4, notice he builds his whole theology out of Rome. Paul isn't inventing Christianity. This is is one of the ways that uh, the arguments you'll hear in the Jewish community is that that Jesus was not so bad, but Paul reinvented Christianity. What Paul taught wasn't what Jesus taught. But what Paul taught is exactly what Jesus taught. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Why? Because that he's the only one who could pay the penalty for sin. This is exactly what Paul is developing here. So that just as Abraham believed God in the Old Testament. Now, this is a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, but actually it occurred much before that according to the way you, we understand the tenses in the, in the Hebrew there. It's, the verse is a reminder of the fact that Abraham had already in some time past believed God, and it was that faith in God that was accounted or imputed to him as righteousness. So that becomes the standard. The rest of chapter 4 uh, talks about that. And what happened, and this is all just boiled down in this chart, when our sin is imputed to Christ, it's paid for. And that's true for every single human being. The sin is paid for at the cross so that, as Paul says in, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, that that, that sin wipes out that certificate of debt against everyone at the point of the cross. It's wiped out so that sin is no longer the issue. 
But the problem is this, this, this poor uh, human being is still unrighteous. He's still spiritually dead. So when he trusts in Christ as Savior at that instant, God the Father imputes Christ's perfect righteousness to the unbeliever. So that when God looks at the unbeliever from that point on, he looks at the perfect righteousness of Christ that he possesses. That's his. That's the basis for our justification, and we are declared righteous. So that's what Romans 3, from Romans 3.20 down through 5.21 is emphasizing, is that we're righteous not because of something that we've done, but because of what Christ did. And so at that instant, we're declared righteous, and that is that wonderful doctrine called justification by faith alone. And today we don't hear people talk about it a whole lot, but this is the real issue, is how to be just before God. How can an unrighteous person be made righteous? And this is how it takes place. Only then can God bless us. And he blesses us not because of what we've done, but he blesses us because we possess the righteousness of Christ. He's blessing Christ's righteousness, not us, because we're still sinners. We still have a sin nature. So the question then becomes, well, what what in the world are we going to do about this nasty little sin nature? And that's the next section that gets developed in Romans. In Romans 6 through 8 is how do we live this new life that we're given at the instant of justification? And we had just a great time going through Romans 6, 7, and 8, and these three chapters are the key chapters, I think, in Scripture related to the spiritual life. How we understand this is foundational to understanding the spiritual life. It's a, it's a development and a refinement of what Paul covers in Galatians. Galatians has six chapters. Romans has 16 chapters. Galatians, in many ways, is a microcosm of, of, of Romans. Galatians was Paul's first epistle. And he's dealing with the same issues there. One of the great passages on justification is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And we know that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law. And that's what he clearly states in Galatians 2, 16. And then in chapters 3 through 5, He's developing the foundation for the spiritual life, and starting in Galatians 5.16, he then builds on the spiritual life. Well, Galatians 5.16 and following all through chapter 6 really relates to understanding uh, Romans 6-8. through 8. So Romans 6-8 through 8 is Paul's best development, and it starts off by talking about a very important doctrine which we describe as the baptism by the Holy Spirit, that when you and I trusted in Christ... When I believed in Christ, at that instant, when I was six years old, I was identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And at that instant, though I didn't know it at the time, I didn't feel anything, what happened at that time is I became free from the tyranny of the sin nature. That had never happened before. It didn't happen to Adam. It didn't happen to Noah, Abraham, David, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Zechariah, anybody in the Old Testament. It didn't happen to John the Baptist. It didn't happen to any Old Testament saint. They were still under the tyranny of their sin nature, and it wasn't until the day of Pentecost when God the Holy Spirit came that the baptism by the Holy Spirit, that act of identifying a believer with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection took place. So that Paul says to the Romans, 
He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized or identified into Christ Jesus were baptized or identified into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That term, walk, is so important. That's the Christian life. That's your Christian life. What Paul is saying here is therefore fill in the blank, put your name there. When you're reading your Bible sometimes and Paul uses these pronouns, it's very helpful to substitute your name in, in these places because that helps you see the application. So therefore, put your name in there. You were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so you also should walk in newness of life. That's the basis for this new life that we have in Christ. And so Paul goes on to say that this is a reality, even though we didn't experience it as such, and now we have to live to God. For just as Christ died to sin once for all, and the life he lives, he lives to God, so too we should live to God. And so in verse 11 he says that we are to reckon ourselves And that's a present active imperative. That's a command that should characterize us all the time. We're to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to Jesus Christ. So what happens with most believers is they run around every day totally alive to their sin nature and dead to Christ. And they let their sin nature just run rampant, and then they say, well, I'll just confess it later. And that's not that's missing the whole point of the Christian life. That's missing the whole point of newness of life. The point of newness of life is that we're so immersed in doctrine and doctrine so wraps around our soul that we understand this new identity that we have in Christ and that we're alive to him and we're supposed to be dead to sin. And death has that idea of separation. Now, that doesn't mean that that if you sin, you lose your salvation, but it means that if you sin, you have to recover from it, and that's why why we have uh, 1 John 1, 9. But in verse 14, Paul says, For sin should not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Sin is going to destroy your life as a believer if you don't get a handle on this principle and live in a way that is separated from sin. This is So how do we do that? That's the major question. In Romans chapter 7, Paul really talks about himself and all the problems he had that he couldn't live uh, a life that he wanted to because he didn't understand how to do that. He tried to do it on his own effort. He tried to do it through just self-discipline or self-improvement or self-morality, but it just didn't work. And so finally he comes to chapter 8, and chapter 8 is where we have our emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 8 he says, at, at the very beginning he says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not under condemnation anymore. We, we don't need to worry about sin in that sense. We only worry about it because it takes us out of fellowship and we need to recover. And he goes on to talk about this contrast between the spirit of life in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life, versus sin. And this is a struggle between the spirit and the flesh. And so he develops this. It's parallel to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 17 and 18, 
that the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. But the issue is that we are to walk by means of the spirit because the spirit of God dwells inside each and every one of us. The spirit of God dwells in us, verse 9, and Christ is in us, verse 10. But because of the spirit, we have the spirit is life because of righteousness in verse 10. And so the Holy Spirit becomes the foundation for understanding how to live the spiritual life. We have to learn to walk by the Spirit. That's Galatians 5.16. And if you don't learn to walk by the Spirit, then you're just going to be a failure in the Christian life. We all have periods of time like that where we fail to do it. But that's the simple solution in Scriptures, to walk by the Spirit. Well, what's entailed in that? Well, whenever we fail to walk, we have to confess our sin, but that's not enough. That just gets us back in a place where we can then walk by the Spirit. We need to be uh, involved in studying the Word of God so that it, it is internalized, it's assimilated into our our souls. This is what Paul's going to talk about when we get to Revelate. I mean, we get to Romans twelve one and two, that we need to not be conformed or pressed into the mold of the world, but we need to be transformed by the by the think transform our thinking by the word of god so that we learn to react to life circumstances and situations by the word of god and not by by what our natural responses will be because that comes from our sin nature and so this is what is developed by uh by paul in romans chapter 8 and he talks about the role of suffering and that every everybody suffers. We live in a fallen world, a fallen creation. Verse 22, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. But we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan. We struggle because we're living in this fallen world. But we have a hope. We were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope for what does uh, one still hope for uh, uh, for why does one still hope for what he sees? In other words, we're, we're living in light of, uh, of eternity. And so we hope for what we do not see, and we wait for it with endurance, with perseverance. We have to hang in there uh, through the trials and through the difficulties because that's what God's using to bring us to that, uh, that position and to conform us to the image of Christ, which is in verse, uh, verse 29. Then as Paul closes out his discussion on the spiritual life, he comes to a, a crescendo with a, a wonderful pair of verses that you should have underlined, verses 38 and 39, and you should also have memorized by now. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." that we have eternal security because our salvation is not dependent on what we've done at all. Anyone who thinks that they can lose their salvation by something that they do, trust me, somewhere they're thinking that they got salvation based on something they did. Because if they can lose it on the basis of what they've done, then they did something to get it. They've got works somewhere hidden in the background, but they've got, they don't understand grace. Grace means God the Father and his omniscience knew every sin that we would ever commit, and he didn't drop one 
when he imputed them all to the to Christ on the cross. And he was smart enough and wise enough and omniscient enough to impute every sin to Christ so that every sin was paid for. There's no sin that Christ forgot about, no sin that God the Father forgot about, and there's no sin that we can commit that's too great for the grace of God. But as soon as Paul would say this, someone would say, well, we, Paul, you're arguing that God is faithful, but what about the Jews? It looks like he's pretty much washing his hands of the Jews, and that brings him to the uh, next section. That brings him to the next section in Romans chapter 9, where we're going to look at at the vindication of God's righteousness in relationship to Israel. So what have we done so far? We just think it through. We've got, first of all, all people are under condemnation, and righteousness of God condemns everyone. The immoral, the moral, and the religious, all are under condemnation because we're born with this defect. We're, we're born sinners. We are totally depraved. There's nothing we can do to become righteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. The only way we can have righteousness is if God gives it to us. And the way he gives it to us is in a way that everybody can, 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 can use, which is through faith that just as Abraham was justified by faith alone, so we're justified by faith alone. Because of that, we now have a new life, and in sanctification, because we've been justified, because sin's paid for, because uh, what went with that in the church age is the baptism by the Holy Spirit, we're now freed from the sin nature. But just as we have to rely upon God to solve the problem of our unrighteousness at the at, at, at justification, we have to rely upon God, the Holy Spirit, to deal with our experiential unrighteousness at this life. We have to walk by the Spirit. And so that's Romans 6, 7, and 8. Now the question then comes up is, well, what about God's faithfulness to Israel? This is developed in Romans 9, 10, and 11 indicating that God is not through with Israel. And in one of the great passages in Scripture, and you should have it underlined, that where Paul says in verse 4 uh, that the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, present tense, they still belong to the Jewish people. God still has a plan and purpose. And then he goes through the background of God's calling of the Jewish people for God's purpose, that this was not based on their works, and this is a call of the national people. All through this section, the issue is on corporate Israel, not on individual justification or condemnation, but on God's calling of the Jewish people. This is why he says, for, for uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. This is a sign that J- Jacob... In the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the descendants of Abraham were the chosen people corporately by God's grace, not for a destiny of personal individual salvation, but for the destiny that God had for them as custodians of the word of God, of the scriptures, and of the line of the Messiah. And he rejected Esau. That was not the plan that God had for Esau and the descendants of Esau. This isn't talking about their individual justification because I believe it's demon- uh, you can demonstrate that both Jacob and Esau were blessed by God. Jacob got the greater blessing, but Esau was blessed by God too. And both Jacob and Esau were believers. Esau was definitely a believer. So it's not talking about their individual uh, destiny in terms of heaven. And then in this section... 
you know, Paul, Paul develops the issue that, that uh, he is, that even in the Old Testament, God had a plan for the Gentiles that they would be blessed in and through the Jewish people. And then he goes on to develop this in uh, chapter 10, that Israel eventually would still be saved, that is delivered, and this is in 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayers to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He's very pro-Israel. He's not, this isn't a foundation for anti-Semitism, but for the deliverance of Israel. And that word saved isn't talking about justification. It's talking about their ultimate future deliverance as a people in terms of the plan that God had for them as, as stated in the Old Testament. This is how we must understand then the verses that are often used uh, for gospel presentations in a very wrong sense in verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved doesn't mean justified, it's delivered. There's two steps here. One is believing with faith. The other is uh, calling out to God, confessing with your mouth, and this has to do with the deliverance of the Jewish people in the end times, which is the context of the quote that state that's given in verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. This is from Joel chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 28, uh, 28 to 30. And uh, to 32, and that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is at the end of the tribulation period. Then Paul goes on to develop this in Romans chapter 11 to show that, that God has not permanently cast away his people. That is in terms of a covenant position and blessing in verse 1, but that God is eventually going to restore them to that position of blessing. Again, it's not talking about individual justification. It's talking about being restored to the position of blessing as in indicated by that uh, wonderful illustration of the wild olive tree where the uh, are the excuse me the olive tree the natural domestic olive tree where some of the branches are cut off and removed from the place of blessing and the wild olive branches which are the gentiles are grafted in it has to do with their relation to the abrahamic covenant doesn't again have to do with individual individual justification now, as Paul wraps up that, that particular passage, he's brought to a great crescendo and a great benediction in verses 33 to 36, focusing on the character of God, that God is wise, his knowledge is perfect, and his judgments are unsearchable. And so that he is, when, when it's all said and done, we're going to look back and see that God's plan was perfect and righteous. Then we come to the second part of the epistle, where we talk about personal application of righteousness. And this, again, is pretty pretty simple. In, the, in chapter 12, the focus is on how to exhibit experiential or personal righteousness within the body of Christ. The foundational verses are verses 1 and 2. These should be underlined in your Bible. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. That means your whole life. Everything should be a living sacrifice to God. Now, we've forgotten a lot about what a sacrifice means. And next Thursday night, we're going to have a very uh, significant and special focus just on sacrifice and understanding what that means because we've lost uh, a sense of that and we'll be showing a little film with that uh, as well. I'll be teaching on sacrifice and and hopefully this will, will walk out of here with a very different understanding of what sacrifice is. 
than what we probably have in our minds. Uh, we've often sanitized this concept in, in modern civilization. But we're to, our lives should be a living sacrifice, holy, that is set apart to God, acceptable to him. How, how do we do this? By not being conformed to the world, but by be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We have to immerse ourselves in the teaching of the Word of God and doctrine day in and day out, not just a little here and a little there, but as much as we can, and it's never enough. And that's what positive volition is. It's not just showing up at church three times a week. It's immersing ourselves in the Word of God. What we learn in Bible class should be a springboard to an even greater uh, uh, understanding of the Word of God, and it should be driving us to a greater level of study on, our, uh, on each individual's part. Well, as Paul develops this, he talks about the use of spiritual gifts within the within the body of Christ in the next uh, uh, few verses, in verses 3 through 8. And he talks about how this relates to one another in verses 9 through 14, emphasizing the principle of loving one another, that this is the hallmark for the, uh, for the believer, and that we should always respond, no matter what the antagonism may be, we always have to respond with, with love that can come only from God. We are to love one another as Christ loved us. Now, this also impacts others. This impacts others. It impacts those in, in terms of government and how we relate to those who are uh, in authority over us as well as those who surround us at work or in our neighborhoods or in our families. So there's the discourse on submission to government authority in chapter 13. Authority is so important to understand because that's what the original sin was in the, the fall of Satan. He uh, uh, violated God's authority. He rejected God's authority. And so this is an issue. Even when you think the person in authority is unworthy, None of us who are under a person in authority have the right to make that judgment. And we are to follow God's command, and this is that every soul is to be subject to governing authorities because there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And we went through all of those details there related to the importance of the individual believer being a good citizen and being obedient to the law of the land and the governing authorities. This also means that we're to love one another, and this is uh, the others within the state in verses 8 through 10. Loved and concluding love in verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And then Paul's, uh, Paul wraps this up by talking about the fact that we are to put on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. See, this goes back to Romans chapter 6. We are to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. We're not to make any provision to give the sin nature any opportunity to fulfill its lust. And then in the last uh, two chapters of, of the epistle, he deals with the, the issue of application of righteousness and love to the believer who is weak in faith. He doesn't understand issues related to uh, food and drink, 
And so he thinks that certain taboos apply, and this is probably dealing with Jewish background believers who hadn't quite figured out how to handle the law of kashrut, the law of of unclean food and clean food. And so there, uh, there was an attitude of bickering and an attitude of superiority within the body at, at, at Rome. And so Paul is telling them that they are not to make an issue out of it and because there's nothing particularly significant about meat or drink, and, but it's more important not to create a situation that causes another believer to stumble. And I pointed out that there are a lot of of uh, carnal believers out there who are legalistic believers, they're not stumbling because in order to stumble, you have to be moving forward. And they're not moving forward. This is dealing with people who have legitimate confusion over the issue and need to be helped to think through the issues biblically. And while they're going through that process, don't create further confusion for them. And so then Paul goes on to talk about our uh, behavior towards these righteous uh, or towards these weak believers, and then he wraps up with the conclusion in chapter 15, verses 14, going down through the end of the epistle, where he again returns to some of the main themes related to the gospel, related to the fact that we are to be uh, ministering the gospel uh, to others, uh, Paul says he's a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Again, emphasizing our uh, priestly role as church-age believers. And so he wraps things together in the midst of giving some final reports about his plan to shift his base of operations uh, to Rome and so that he can move into areas like Spain and Illyricum, which is uh, uh, in the north and east of, uh, of Italy and across the Adriatic. And so this is where he's going to, to move. This is his plan. And so then he gives various reports back to the uh, people he'd known who were now located in the church in Rome. So what's the main idea? The main idea is the righteousness of God revealed, that God's righteousness is the issue in history, and we get the great opportunity by grace to participate in that, first by expressing faith alone in Christ alone and receiving the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and then walking by the Spirit so that we can have the righteousness of God develop in us as a fruit of the Spirit so that through our experiential righteousness, we mirror the character of Christ to the world around us. We're not going to be conformed by the world around or to the world around us, but we are going to be distinctive in how we live our lives, demonstrating the character and the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that wraps up our study of Romans, and we'll uh, do the fact that we've got only two weeks, and then Christmas on that uh, December 25th, there won't be class. On January 1st, I will be in Kiev. Uh, we're going to have a couple of uh, great speakers while I'm gone uh, on covering Bible class the first couple of weeks, finishing up the DM2 material on the life of Christ. So remember, we went through part one, the life of Christ with DM2 back in, um, back in September, and so they didn't finish everything in just that first part. 
uh, there's a whole second part. They didn't finish up all of that, and so uh, we're going to have some great speakers from within the congregation who are going to take us through uh, four more lessons there uh, while I'm gone to Kiev, and so that will that will cover things. And then when I get back from Kiev, we'll start on Thursday night with either, I haven't decided yet, but either 1 Samuel or 1 Peter. But we'll be, I'll hopefully finish dispensations before I go to Kiev as well, so we'll have two new studies on, on Tuesday and Thursday night when, when I return. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through this entire epistle, to be reminded of your righteousness, to be reminded that we are who we are only by your grace and that we are to be stimulated and motivated by a study of your word, not just to relax because we are justified, but to be reminded that this should motivate us and stimulate us and push us to greater growth because the goal is spiritual maturity because that's where real life begins. That's where we really begin to experience your blessing in this life and the benefits of being a believer in Christ and all that we have in him. So we have to press on to spiritual maturity as rapidly as possible so that we can glorify you in everything in our lives and challenge us with these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.